All right. If you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 1, you may recall that we uh, started, we started working our way through the book of John. I'm just going to take my time, teach through the book of John, you know, stop where I want, have a good time. And uh, so we started with the first half of chapter one, but we did it in like the middle of October, and then we got distracted by going for it. So uh, actually, we were planning that. I just started it because I wanted to. So uh, if you miss that, it will help you to understand the second half that we're going to cover today by, if you didn't hear the first half, to go back and listen to it. It was titled, what was it titled? Uh, Jesus the Word, uh, and I think we did it on October 17th. But let me just give you a quick review because we're going to build on these principles. And what I want you to get is this. There are these really profound, basic, fundamental principles in the first chapter of John that are huge, but because they're basic, it doesn't mean we always get them. And uh, it's easy to not fully get them. In fact, I freely admit, I don't think I fully get them. I want to get them more fully. So uh, I'll preach to me and you guys can join me, okay? Now, in verses 1 through 18, we were looking at Jesus the Word, Jesus the Logos, and we learned that the Logos there doesn't just mean Word, it was, especially with the Stoic philosophers of the day, it was life, capital L-I-F-E, life in the big sense, the source of life, all life, the sustainer of life, everything. Uh, so we see Jesus the Word as Jesus the life, Jesus the creator of all life, Jesus the sustainer of all life. If Jesus takes a day off, everything's gone, that kind of life, right? And so we talked about that, and uh, the fact that for the most part, the world saw Jesus, or saw God rather, as uh, an impersonal logos, uh, the sustainer of life, but not in a personal way. And so what John is saying in the first 18 verses there are three things that we need to remember that will help us going through this second uh, part of it. First is that this Logos that you previously thought was impersonal, he became a man and he walked among us. He is intensely personal. That the, the life of the universe, the one who created all life in the universe, the one who sustains all life in the universe, became a man and became personal. Let us get to know him. In fact, it was important that he let us get to know him because he goes on to say that he is the exact representation of the Father, that he is the only begotten Son. He is the only being with God the Father's DNA, if you will. He's the only one that looks like him. And so if we've seen Jesus, we've seen God, we've seen the Father. So he came to reveal the exact representation of the Father. So we no longer have to wonder what God is like or speculate or get philosophy degrees on what God is like. We can just look at Jesus, right? And then the third thing, and the amazing thing, is they said he came, became a man to be personal, to display the Father, and third, to empower children, to make more children for God. Whoever believed could become a child of God, and not just a child of God, an empowered child of God, filled with the grace of God. Now, this is the part we're getting to. It's very basic, and I don't think we fully understand it. And I'm certain at this time, they did not fully understand it. And so we're going to get into that today. What does it mean to be empowered children of God? Now, we're going to start in uh, verse 19 and look at 19 through 28. And what we do after this, we're getting into John the Baptist's testimony. John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. And some religious leaders have come out to ask John questions. Because John's out in the wilderness wearing weird clothes, eating weird food, and baptizing people. And everybody's going out, even though he's not even doing miracles. And they want to know what's up. And so they go out and want to see what John's doing. And they have questions for him. So let's read this real quick, and then we'll talk about it. It says, now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites, those would be the leaders and religious experts, uh, from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, there are three 
things that are really important to them that they're looking for, and they're going to hit all three of them here. They want to know if he's any of these three, because they've been looking for these three for hundreds of years. Who are you? He confessed and did not not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. That's one of the things they're looking for. And they said to him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Uh, That's the second thing they're looking for. Elijah. And they said, are you the prophet? Underline the, not just a prophet, the prophet. And I'll explain that in a minute. The third thing they're looking for, and he said, no, I'm none of those things. Uh, Turns out he was wrong, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am. And then he quotes Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. In other words, I am the forerunner. I'm the one Isaiah talked about who had come before the Messiah and prepare the way. All right? As the prophet Isaiah said. Now, those who were with him, uh, who were sent there from the Pharisees, uh, they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? What are you doing then? You aren't one of these three really important guys. Why are you out here baptizing people for repentance? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal straps I am not worthy to lose. Now, who's that? Very good. All right. Don't need to point that out. These things were done in Bethany. Beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Okay, so let's begin to unpack this, because there's some amazing stuff here, if you get it. The first thing is this. I want to talk about the mindset of the religious believers, or the religious leaders, I'm sorry, because if you do not understand their mindset, you will not understand a lot of the New Testament. It really helps to understand. The religious leader's mindset was 100% all the time about restoring Israel. It was largely political. They used to be a prominent nation. Uh, They got taken into captivity. They got brought back, but they've still not been their own nation for hundreds of years. They're now under Rome. Rome is not nice. They are not happy about it. And they have a promise that has been hanging over their head for hundreds of years that a Messiah is going to come and restore the kingdom to Israel. And they're going to be their own nation again. The Messiah is going to rule them and the other nations are going to come and serve them. And It's a pretty cool promise, right? You guys are familiar with it. Okay. So this is the mindset that they're living in. You got to get this because this is different. What we do because uh, we've had 2,000 years of church history to process this, we tend to think of Jesus in terms of a personal savior or a personal relationship. We don't even think sometimes about uh, the millennial kingdom or about the restoration of Israel. We tend to see Jesus as a personal savior. That was not even in their minds. They didn't even have the concept that they needed a personal savior. All they knew, they thought, we're doing fine religiously. We got these rules and we're following them. We just need a Messiah to give us a better government, to give us a rule to, take, to get rid of Rome, right? So this is their mindset. It is a political religious mindset, and uh, it's not personal. And uh, by the way, you're going to see, if you keep this in mind, if you read through the New Testament, you'll see that the disciples, Jesus' disciples, who spent over three years wandering around with him, hearing him talk about what he was up to, still did not get this. I'll show you this by the end of the teaching. But they still did not get this. They still had this political mindset. In fact, um, you will find in, in the book of Acts, they did not even understand that Gentiles could be saved until God just filled a bunch of them with the Holy Spirit while Peter was talking. And he went, wow, I guess they can be saved. That's how, that's how in tune they were with what God's plan was, right? So, We've had 2,000 more years to pick up on it. They didn't pick up on it right away. So you just got to understand that. It's this mindset that Jesus is coming at. He's getting ready to change everything. He's getting ready to change the mindset of an entire people. And lest you think, because we've had 200 years and we get the personal Savior thing, that our mindset's fine, I will be challenging that a little bit later anyway. So hang on. 
All right. So what they did, uh, these religious leaders, out of this mindset, they want to know, are you one of these three guys? Are you the Christ, the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Because all these three guys point to them getting rid of Rome and having a new king, right? Now, let's look at these each individually. The word Christ is, the, is in the Greek, same word as Messiah in the Hebrew, which just means anointed one, the anointed one. Now, there's two ways you can look at the anointed one. Uh, for example, if I said, Tim, we're going to anoint you mayor of Melbourne. Uh, we all understand what that means, right? He now gets to call the shots. He's in charge. If I had that authority, I'd, I'd do it probably, but, you know, I don't. So you're not mayor. Um, <laughs> but it'd be nice. So that would be a political, religious anointing. Uh, I could say... You know, Tim, you're the pastor now. I anoint you. I'm going on vacation. And that would be a, a religious appointment. That would be a position. It would be political or religious. I want you to consider that there's another way to look at anointed one. Because I think when they looked at Jesus Christ as the anointed one, they were thinking the one anointed for the position of king over Israel. Not, perhaps, the second one, the source of anointing. You would get that idea more if you looked in Ephesians 4, verse, 5, uh, verse 15 and 16, where it talks about how Jesus is the head, and the body is joined and knit together to the head, and the head supplies, and the anointing. Where does the anointing go? On the head? You guys realize you don't have anointing. The anointed one has anointing. You get to connect to the head. You understand? Okay. So... The first mindset change we have to embrace is Jesus isn't just king. He's the source of anointing. Whatever we have, it comes from him. You're not going to get it anywhere else. Okay? So I don't think they necessarily got this, or even that they could have anointing. They just wanted the anointing one to give them freedom from Rome. The second is Elijah, and we see this in, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, second to last verse in the Old Testament, uh, Malachi's prophecy says, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, uh, I will send Elijah, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children of the fathers, unless I come and strike the earth with a curse. You guys remember that, right? So they have really latched on to this. Elijah, whenever we see Elijah, he's going to announce the Messiah. The Messiah is coming right after Elijah. And so, uh, in fact, um, if you go today and celebrate Passover with a Jewish family. There'll be an empty cup there. It's Elijah's cup. Why? They're hoping Elijah will show up and announce the Messiah. Because uh, Jewish tradition is that the, maybe the Messiah will come around Passover. You know, when we sacrifice a lamb for our sins, right? So Elijah's Passover cup, he's the announcer of the Messiah. And they're uh, very excited about that. So they want to know, are you Elijah? Are you here to announce the Messiah? Now, interestingly, uh, John says, no, I'm not. He was wrong. Jesus said, yes, you are. He just didn't know. Uh, and you see that in Matthew 17. Uh, it's on the, after the Mount of Transfiguration when they've just seen Elijah. And they go, hey, so why does the scripture say Elijah has to come first? And Jesus says, uh, well, he will come first and restore all things, but he has come first, and they did to him whatever they wanted, and they understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. So in whatever way that works, Jesus makes it very clear that John the Baptist was Elijah, was the forerunner, was that the, the person in Isaiah 40 who is the announcer of Jesus is the same thing. What it boils down to is there's only two things here. There's Jesus, and then there's the announcer of Jesus. And so Elijah is the announcer of Jesus in the spirit of John the Baptist. Does that make sense? So Jesus makes it clear. John the Baptist apparently didn't really know he was coming in the spirit of Elijah, but he was coming in the spirit of Elijah to announce Jesus. Very prophetic uh, role. And uh, it also talks about that future fulfillment, right? Where it says he will come 
first and restore all things. Of course, Jesus knew he was coming back a second time. The apostles didn't get that yet. But uh, I don't know what that will look like. I don't know if Elijah is one of the two witnesses that stands at Jerusalem and gets killed and rises up again and freaks everybody out. I don't know if it's the spirit of Elijah on the church. I don't know what kind of prophetic impetus that is, but there will be some prophetic warning or uh, encouragement before Jesus comes again because he says there will. So it's one of those dual prophecies. Anyway, the important thing is they're, they're trying to figure out who is this, and he's going, no, I'm not Elijah, even though he was. Let's follow that. No one knew he was, not even him. All right. And then they go on to the third one. What about the prophet then? Now, this one's interesting. So I want you to see how this begins to tie together. God has left us so many interesting indicators and trails in the Scripture to tie things together. So it's going to begin to tie together here. So in Deuteronomy 18, 15, this is Moses speaking. And Moses says, hey, guys, God is going to raise up a prophet after me someday, and you need to hear him. You need to listen to this guy. And so for ever since the time of Moses, the giver of the law, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they'd been looking for the prophet. Now, Jeremiah was a pretty good prophet. Samuel was a pretty good prophet. Isaiah was a pretty good prophet. But none of them were the prophet, right? If, uh, it's very clear. I've given you the references there in John 6 and in Acts that Jesus is the prophet that Moses was restoring to, uh, or referring to, who we had to hear. Uh, but they didn't know that. And so they're going, are you, are you uh, the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Now, here's the thing. It's a very simple statement. You've got to get this. Uh, Moses said, look, with one hand, here's the law. All this. But there's going to be a prophet, and you're going to need to listen to him. Law. Listen to him. They're two different things, and we're going to see this, okay? So, in Matthew 17, we already have referenced this, uh, the disciples go up on a mountain, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus gets transformed and becomes real shiny, and Moses and Elijah come and talk with him, and of course, Peter can't, can't not get in the conversation, so he does. You guys all remember that story, right? The Mount of Transfiguration. Everybody knows that story? I have to read that to you. Good. Okay, here's what I want you to get. He's on the mountain, and he's with Moses and Elijah. Elijah is the one who announces the Messiah, right? Moses is the one who gave them the law, but told them about the prophet who they were supposed to listen to, right? So he's got every messianic indicator there is on the mountain, Moses and Elijah. Hey, remember? And then with that, Peter speaks up, and God says, Peter, I don't think you understand what's going on here. Let me just clarify. And so I want to read to you Matthew 17, chapter, five, or chapter 17, verse 5. He says, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud. Who do you think that was? Good. All right. You guys are clever. All right. So God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now, let me make sure you get this. He's going, Peter, you've had the law, right? Look, here's Moses, the giver of the law. Remember, he told you about the prophet that you would need to listen to. Remember, here's Elijah. Remember, Elijah was going to tell you, uh, come before the Messiah, who you need to listen to, this, this is my son, listen to him. Are you getting this? Isn't that amazing? So he's going, he's pulling it all together, and he's going, everything's changing, guys. Uh, the, the Moses law thing, we're moving on, now we listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. Okay? Now, Paul figures this out and explains this pretty eloquently in Galatians 3. Before I go there, let me just remind you, he did not say, God did not say, 
This is the King of Israel. Listen to him. This is the Messiah. Listen to him. This is the prophet. Listen to him. What did he say? This is my son. We need to pay attention to God's mindset. This is my son. Listen to him. I have given you my son. Listen to him. I'm about sons. Right? So we need to pay attention to that. God did not have a super political religious mindset here. He had a relational mindset. Now, so let's read Galatians 3, because it seems pretty radical. Now, even to us now, none of us do the Jewish law, as far as I know. I haven't seen anyone sacrifice animals. Um, I've seen a lot of you eat bacon. Uh, so I'm pretty sure we're not doing it. Uh, but even then, it seems radical to just go, well, let's just put the law away. And imagine Israel hearing, okay, we're done with the law thing. We're going to hear him now. So this explains that. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 7. It says, but the scriptures has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given. We, to those who believe, it was always going to be about faith, but it was going to be hard for us to get that it was about faith. Sometimes it's still hard today for us to get that it's about faith. And so he goes, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to bring the law so everyone really gets how much they need faith. That's really what's going on. The law was really just instruction. Uh, here's all the things that you would need to do to try and be good. We aren't very good at this. Yep, got it, perfect. Now let's talk about faith. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. It literally means the one who takes by the hand. So the law, the whole purpose of the law was just to bring us to the place of understanding our need for redemption from a Savior. Our need for salvation by faith. That's it. That's what the law does. This had to be hard for them to hear. Is it hard for you to hear? That we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not sure we really get this. That it's shifted from followers of the law to sons of God. Now, if you're a woman, just your daughter. It's okay. It's all the same. In fact, it says this in the next passage. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have been put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. So your sons, I'm daughters. It's all good. Uh, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, and you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are heirs of the promise of Abraham. We have totally circumvented uh, having to be a Jew or having to come under the law because we got to do it by faith afterwards. They get to do it by faith afterwards. They just they needed to do the law thing so we could all understand. I appreciate that they did that for us. Don't you? Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave. So you're a child in the house, but because you're a child, you get treated like a slave, which is what, what they're talking about when they were under the law, right? They were slaves to the law. But, though he's a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. He didn't come just to forgive our sins. He came to make us sons. You get that? It's a big difference. And, and again, I feel like I'm only beginning to grasp this, guys, and we need to. This next sentence, I bold and underlined, and I just really, I'm going to read this several times until I think we might begin to understand it. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son 
into your hearts. Because you are sons, you get the Holy Spirit. You can't have the Holy Spirit under the law. But because you were sons, you get the family spirit. Because you were sons, you're accepted in the beloved, in the Godhead. Because you were sons, you're a co-heir. You get everything Jesus gets. Because you are sons, he has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Do we get that? I freely admit, I don't get that like I need to get that. We need to meditate on that. He came to make us sons and daughters. And because we're in the family, we get the Spirit of God. Isn't this amazing? Can you imagine how amazing that was? I get why Peter and James and John, those guys, didn't get this. Now look, we have hundreds of years of history of how this thing works. And nowhere in here do we talk about us being sons or getting the Spirit of God. I mean, a few of the prophetic guys were really cool. They had the Spirit of God come on them, and we were impressed with that. But you're talking about, like, just, you know, Billy Bob here can have the Spirit of God? <laughs> right? Yes, you get how radical this is? Is it radical for us? And so, what I want you to see is there is a tradition, or I'm sorry, there is a transition going on here from a political, religious mindset, Messiah, King, to a personal mindset, sons of God. Uh, it's about hearts. Let me put it this way, in case you might be thinking, well, thank God, I don't look at God in a political, religious way, right? Wait till you hear my definition. My definition of having a political slash religious relationship with God is when we begin to function under the belief that my religious service somehow earns me better circumstances. If I serve God in the appropriate way religiously, my circumstances will improve. My Rome will go away. My king will restore the kingdom. If I, I trade my religious service for better circumstances, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. You guys follow me? Do we have a problem with a religious political orientation sometimes? Anybody ever got caught in that mindset? My religious service earns me better circumstances with God. All right, I'll get off of you now. What I want you to see is the same transition he was trying to bring for them, he's trying to bring to us, that we don't get caught in this political, religious service mindset that God's just here about our circumstances. He is here to make sons and daughters of God, and that's about our hearts. And in fact, um, if you give God a choice, uh, God, fix my circumstances or fix my heart, he'll often go, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to choose the second one. I'm going to fix your heart. Because in fact, I might leave you in those circumstances because it's enabling me to fix your heart. Whoa, how's that for a weird theology? Are you with me? Anybody ever gotten left in your circumstances and God later went, yeah, I was working on your heart. I could have fixed that any time, but I had a higher goal because I'm making sons. I'm making sons and daughters. That's what I'm up to right now. I'm after the internal before the external. Will God restore Israel? Will he be king? Yes. In fact, it's way bigger than that. He's going to restore the whole earth. But he's doing that at the second coming. You know what he's doing at the first coming? Building a church. Internal, then external. We so often want him to fix our externals. And God goes, I'm doing the externals on the second coming. I'll restore the entire earth. It'll be awesome. But right now I'm building a church and I want to do your heart. And I might even use the externals to work on your heart. 
if you'll allow it. Are you with me? So you see how it's not just them. We have to guard against this. We have to really get that God is about making sons and daughters. And uh, again, he, he, he wants to bless us. He wants to help our circumstances. But the priority, he is king, and he will do those things, but his priority is our hearts. Because his priority is building his kingdom, building his church, making sons and daughters. And so with that in mind, let's look at John the Baptist's mindset um, when we were get this open again. My Bible closed. When we were reading this, um, John referred to him as the one coming after me who's basically, I'm not worthy to touch his feet. You know how you know, the lowest servant would take off someone's shoes and wash their feet when they come into the house? I'm not even worried to do that. I don't, he's awesome. I'm not even worried to touch his feet. John's mindset is that he is announcing the only worthy one. That is his entire focus. I'm here to announce the only worthy one. I'm not focused on anything else. I don't care who the prophet or whoever is. I don't even care that I'm Elijah and I don't know it. I'm just focused on the only worthy one. We see this. I love that John has in the book of Revelation this exact revelation. I don't know. uh, Probably he wrote this before that. uh, But he has that revelation where he's standing in heaven, remember? And and God holds up a scroll. Who's worthy? And he's crying. It says he's, he's weeping profoundly because no one's worthy to open the scroll, the deed to earth, to justice, to bring justice to earth. And then the angel says, it's all cool, dude. The lamb, he's worthy to open the scroll. He's the only worthy one, the only worthy man. And that's what John's focus is. I'm, I'm on, all in on this guy, the only worthy man. Amen. And so what I want you to see that for them, the focus was a shift from the law to Jesus. And from us, it's a constant battle to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and not go back to the law, not go back to earning it, not go back to all those other things to just keep our eyes fixed on the only worthy one. Now, by the way, lest you hear what I'm not saying, Jesus made it very clear the law isn't gone. In Matthew 5, he said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. And that's a whole other teaching, how he fulfills it, but he does fulfill it. And it won't pass away. Uh, If we just listen to him, we'll do way more than the law anyway. All right? All right, let's go on. We've got more to cover and all that stuff. So, Next passage, I want to look at uh, verse, I think I got it, yep, yep, I wrote it wrong. That should say in your notes uh, 29 through uh, 35, but I made a mistake, so there. Um, In verse uh, 29 through 35, or through 34, uh, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember when the Messiah was going to be revealed? The Lamb. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize, that would be God, uh, with water, said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is the anointed one who's the anointer, right? And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, again, let's unpack this a little bit. Jesus is, of course, the Passover lamb, right? He is the once for all sacrifice for sin. And so uh, John refers to him as the lamb of God. Uh, But again, we got to catch how big, how profound this is, that he is literally life, the life, the source of life, the source of life in the universe laid down for us. You get that? Not just a guy said, I'm going to die for everybody. Life, the source of life, the creator of all life. I'm going to come and die for everybody. Life laid down. John 10, 
Jesus said, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. I lay it down, but I have the power to take it up again because I'm life. I can lay it down and pick it back up. Amen? So that's pretty huge. And then John sees the Spirit remain on him, the anointed one, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Guys, this is brand new. There was no baptizing with the Holy Spirit before this because there weren't sons, because Jesus hadn't made a way for us to be in the family yet. But when he gave his life to make us sons, now sons could receive the Spirit. This is the one, this is the anointed one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? Now you, because you're sons, you can baptize with the Holy Spirit too, right? But it all comes from him. He is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. And again, it's really easy to blow over that. But this is why Jesus came, to give us, to make us sons, to give us the Spirit of God. Now, uh, he ends that passage by saying, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, that's a messianic title. The place you most clearly see that is in Psalm 2. Verse 7, um, today I have begotten you, um, uh, my only begotten son, today I have begotten you, ask me and I will give you the nations and you will rule them with the rod of iron. It's quoted in Revelation. Toward the end of uh, Psalm 2, uh, we're told, kiss the son lest you perish in the way. Basically, you know, Jesus or death, you pick, right? So, uh, son is a clearly understood messianic title. I found this interesting. This is just the way my brain works, so you have to go with me because I'm up here. Um, the only time you see the religious leaders, they're always Messiah, prophet, king. The only time you see them refer to Jesus' as son was in his trial. They're asking him, tell us plainly, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? Because they're trying to trap him in a blasphemy. And when he tells them, of course, they crucify him, right? But here's what I found interesting. You read through Every time Jesus is, encounters Satan or devils, without exception, they go, you're the son of God. <laughs> Satan goes in John 4, or Matthew 4, we're in the temptation, if you're the son of God, do that. If you're the son of God, do that. I'm going, where do they know that we don't know? That they keep focusing in on son, and we focus in on king and Messiah and all that. It just intrigues me. Perhaps we haven't had the revelation of God that they've had, uh, which probably terrifies them, right? Because that's, I don't think the devil said it, you know, when Jesus walked up, they didn't go, you're the son of God. They went, ah, you're the son of God. <laughs> this isn't going to end well. And it never did, right? I'm telling you, there's something about him being son and making us sons. So I want to I put this in your notes, great big bold letters. Life came to redeem us and empower us to become sons of God. I want to understand that. I want to really understand that statement. That life came to empower, redeem us and empower us to become sons of God. Because it's totally biblical. And I want to understand it. I want to understand what it means. So, what we have in the remainder of the chapter, I'm going to go through quickly, is a couple of disciples getting called, well actually I think five disciples get called to be disciples here. I'm not going to read it all, I'm just going to hit some high points. Um, but uh, the first thing that happens is a couple of John's disciples, um, one of them I think was, I think it's Philip, I can't remember. There's five of them, I always get names confused anyway. Anyway, you know the guys. Uh, so, uh, they start following after Jesus, and Jesus turns around and says, what do you seek? Now, this is, I don't think Jesus is just making small talk. I need you to hear him ask you, what do you seek? What are you seeking? Are you seeking better circumstances? Are you seeking to just be blessed? Are you seeking to be a son or a daughter? What do you seek? And I think he likes their answer. They go, uh, you know, where do you live? Can we come hang out? Can we come over and... Maybe have a sleepover, something. 
He's like, yeah, come on, come and see. So their answer is, well, we, we kind of like relationship with you. And, uh, and he likes that. He says, sure, come on. That's the right answer, by the way. What do you seek? You. I want to hear you. Moses said I should hear you. God, with a big voice on heaven, on a mountain, with Moses and Elijah and John and uh, Peter and James said I should hear you. I want to hear you. Can I come over to your house? Amen. The next, uh, we see uh, Philip. No, here's Philip. Philip, because Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. Uh, Philip, he calls Philip, and he just says, Philip, follow me. Now, I just want you to notice, he did not say, Philip, follow the law. Philip, follow my religion. Philip, become uh, this person. He said, follow me. He did not tell them to follow his stuff. I also want you to understand this. It would have been easier if he had just told Philip to follow the law. Following Jesus is a much higher standard. Again, the law has not been done away with. He just fulfills it. Uh, he goes way past it. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you think the law sounds hard. He goes, yeah, uh, you read, don't do this. I'm saying if it happens in your heart. He keeps taking it from action to heart. Because we're going way higher on our standards here. Uh, you're following me now, right? Now you're sons. I can expect a little bit more mature behavior out of you, right? So he says, follow me. And they follow and then uh, Philip goes and gets Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's sitting under a tree at some point. And when Philip brings Nathaniel over, Jesus goes, Oh, yeah, I saw you sitting under the tree and reads his mail, tells him about how he's sitting under the tree. And Nathaniel's very impressed uh, that Jesus knew stuff about him that there was no way Jesus could know about him. And so he decides right away, You are the Son of God. Right? Now, I want to just unpack this a little bit too, because it's fun. In verse 49, he says, because uh, Jesus has just told him something he couldn't know, he goes, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Where did he immediately go? Political. Political. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. This is awesome. I'm going to become a disciple. I might get off of space in the temple when he takes over because <laughs> he's going to be king of Israel. This is good. This is what we've been waiting for. You're the Son of God. Jesus has an interesting answer. Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, which was a common title Jesus used. Now here's what I think is going on here. Uh, Nathaniel says, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus says, I'm the son of man. I, I am God. You're right. But I came, I want you to understand, I came to become a man. And I'm the connection to heaven. I'm not just the king of Israel. I'm the connection to heaven. Why that? Because he refers to something that they would have known about. Uh, you should know this also. It's in Genesis 28 when he said, you will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Sounds a lot like Genesis 28 when Jacob uh, is taking a nap on his way back and he has a dream and uh, he says, and he dreamed and behold a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Same language, right? Jesus uses the same language intentionally. And then jumping into verse 17, and he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. When you see angels ascending and descending, it's a gate of heaven. I think what Jesus is saying here is uh, Nathaniel says, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the son of man. I came here to be one of you. I'm the connection between man and God. I'm not just the king of Israel. I'm the gate of heaven. Amen. Ultimately, when I come again, I'll restore all things and heaven will come to earth and there won't be a separation. But for now, I'm the gate. I'm the gate to heaven. You got it? Isn't that pretty awesome? You're the son of God. I'm also the son of man. I'm both. So, 
Here's what I want you to see. He became the Son of Man to make us sons of God. Right? Now, that's a profound thing, guys. God became man to make us sons of God, not just to save us, not just so we could go to heaven, because he could have done that, but to bring us fully into the family to make us sons and daughters of God to qualify us to receive the spirit that he has that would transform us into sons. And he's going to spend, it it appears to be a couple thousand years building his church and making sons and daughters by his spirit. You're starting to get a picture of how big a deal this is. There's so much more here than I think we've gotten. So let's finish up by talking about our mindset uh, in this situation. And what I want to do, I want you to see that the apostles still, even after Jesus died and rose again on the day he ascended into heaven, they still had this political religious mindset and they did not see that it was bigger than Israel. They could not get past their world. Sometimes that happens to us. We can't get past what God's doing or not doing in our world. And it's bigger. So check this out. Acts 1, verses 4 through 8, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. What's that promise? Well, it's not just salvation? It's not just heaven? No. The promise is the Spirit of God that will make us sons and daughters. Right? Because wait for the promise. And specifically, in John 20, Jesus had already breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit to the disciples, and they had. So he's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about that promise, not just the seal of the Holy Spirit, but the infilling, the Holy Spirit that begins to come and change us and flow out of us like rivers of living water. And uh, sons and daughters of God begin to act like God, and things change around us. That Holy Spirit. Which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. See it all tying together? Therefore, when they had come together and asked him, saying, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? I've come to make you sons and daughters of God. It's never happened before. I gave my life so you could have life become children of God, receive the Spirit of God. Yes, but are you going to be king now? Is this the time we get rid of Rome? Do you understand? You get it? Humans are so human. And we're no better. Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he says to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put into his own authority. So it's basically, I'm not telling. And I don't even know. Only God knows. But I will tell you this. And then he does. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now hear what's going on here, guys. They're going, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? He's going, no, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and empower you. It's way bigger than restoring Israel. It's going to the ends of the earth. Get it, disciples. This is way more than the temple. In fact, that temple ain't going to be there in a few years. This thing is going to the ends of the earth. It's way bigger than you've imagined. And it's bigger, uh, and the way I'm going to do it is giving you the Spirit and making you sons and daughters. Are you seeing what's going on? Because this is the challenge. This is the challenge in my heart and in your heart. Have we grasped that it's bigger than you and me? Have we grasped that it's bigger than Church on the Rock? That possibly God doesn't want to just bless Church on the Rock and have us be filled with the Spirit and people get healed. Maybe He wants to bless Brevard County through Church on the Rock. Maybe He wants to bless Florida through Brevard County. Maybe this thing's way bigger than we can imagine. And if we would grasp what it means to be sons and daughters of God, he could do it. He's making sons and daughters. Last question. Jesus says, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, that he is 
Simple math here. He is the gateway to heaven, right? He made us sons. He put us, he put his spirit in us. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Who here is a gateway of heaven? All right, there's a couple hands. Do you get it? Do you realize, have you gasped, grasped that the gate of heaven dwells in you? That the gate of heaven dwells in you? That angels can descend and descend upon you? That you can engage the activity of heaven? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Do we get this? Do we get what it means to be sons and daughters who have been qualified and allowed into the family and given the family spirit? Do we get this? I, <clears throat> I know I don't get it like I need to get it, but I want it, so I'm going to go for it. Are you with me? Are you seeing what's there, what John's saying? This is so radical. It's so radical then that it's still radical 2,000 years later to us. Oh my God, I'm a son with a gateway of heaven living in me that I can access because Jesus did that. I'm going to listen to him. So, who here wants to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Okay, good. I was hoping I'd see more hands. So what we're going to do, let's have the worship team up. I don't want to give you, I just felt this morning that God wanted to fill people with His Holy Spirit. Now, if you're thinking, dang it, I'm already baptized in the Holy Spirit, I guess I could go home now. Um, uh, in Ephesians 5, he does say, keep on being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. The same disciples who were filled with the Holy Spirit in, on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 prayed a really cool prayer in Acts chapter 4 and got filled with the Holy Spirit again. So... I'm thinking you can stay. Um, so everybody qualifies. So here's what I want to do. Uh, as we go into worship, uh, the ministry team, I want to ask some people from the ministry team to come up front, but be kind of way up front. Uh, if you want prayer to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the ministry team will be here to pray for you. If, uh, uh, I want them way up front because I feel like some people are just going to want to come up here and worship and go, I just want me and God do this thing. And that's fine. Uh, they won't, the uh, ministry team, they don't come up to you, don't go up to them. If you want prayer, go up to the ministry team. If you just want to come up here and stand and worship, that's fine. If you want to stay out there and worship, that's fine. Uh, what you're after is, God, I am realizing I'm your son and your daughter and that I can have the family spirit. And I, I want to understand that more. I want more. I want you to fill me with your spirit today, God. I know there's gifts there. I know there's grace there. I know you're making me a son and daughter. My circumstances aren't nearly as important as my relationship as your son and daughter. Bearing fruit of your spirit. Things like that. Amen? You guys up for that? Yes. All right, so let's stand and uh, I'll turn it over to the worship team and they'll do what they do.